Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Monday, October 14th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I'm Wayne Floyd, your host. Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. A lot of great listening over there, over 60 well-curated podcasts, very, very wide variety of topics. So definitely worth your while. I will guarantee you'll find something over there to listen to. And fact is... I think it's a real possibility you'll find more to listen to over there than you have time to listen. Um, I want to also continue to point you at the final link in our show notes. It is for the Vail Valley Baptist Church Give, Sin, Go campaign. We are continuing to strive to rapidly pay off our mortgage so that we can commence establishment of a Christian classic education-based school uh, to provide a trustworthy alternative within our community. So... Go ahead and click on the link. Pastor Jay's provided a pretty thorough description over there. Actually, much more thorough than I've just given you here on the air. And then we would ask three things of you. We'd ask you to pray for us. We'd ask for you to prayerfully consider giving to us. And we'd ask you to pass the link along so that others can do the same. All right. Um, Just wanted to touch base real quick. Um, Very, very sorry about not getting a Sunday episode out and just... uh, I was going to try and it it just, I, like I, like I posted on Facebook and I, you know, maybe half of you probably didn't even read that or even know that that was out there. But, um, I I had to take my wife to the emergency room, to the hospital last night. Um, so, uh, we were in there very, very late. I had not recorded before that. We'd actually been at church trying to, um, get books in the library, books that had come in and we'd vetted out and trying to get them all with the appropriate library cards in them and all that kind of stuff and get them up alphabetized and all that. Um, and then ended up having issues, my wife having issues. Um, and I won't go into the nitty gritty of it, but we're, we're, the issues continue. We are treating with the medications the emergency room gave us, um, in hopes that, um, some resolution will come. So, um, I say all that to also say I've gotten some sleep, but not a lot. I will do my best not to yawn. Mm, about to do it now. Not to yawn in your ear. I don't have a yawn button. I don't have quite that technology yet. If I ever do um, get it for this. Um, so I will do my best not to yawn in your ear. Um, but please forgive me if I do. I just, I want it. I, I want us to be able to continue on in the Bible study and get this stuff done. And I've got my wife at a relatively stable place right now. So I had the time to go ahead and do it. So we're going to go and do it uh, with it being Monday. You know, we're going to do our Bible reading for the morning segment. And then we're going to continue on in our study of John chapter 11 for our evening segment. And uh, we're closing up on the end of John 11. And, uh, we're, let's see, we'll, we'll be finishing, God willing, um, this part three, this this third major section of John 11, um, this part that, that is actually the raising of Lazarus, the miracle. And then we'll be moving on, like I said, God willing, into section four. We may, we, we should do that by Wednesday. 
Um, I don't know that we'll finish this week, but if not, we should finish John 11 next week. And then we're going to have to move into the new MacArthur commentary, the, the, the second volume of the John commentary from John MacArthur. Um, so, Hey, I've not even been in that book yet. So, Hey, that'll be pretty neat for all of us. Um, but with all that said, why don't we go ahead and jump straight on in? Mm. We're going to go ahead. Oh, and I, and I definitely have to celebrate and be very, very thankful. Uh, my son, my oldest son has come to a saving faith in Christ and, uh, he was baptized today. Believers baptism. Yes, we believe in believers baptism. Uh, I think people try to call us credo Baptist or something like that. It's like, whatever, um, whatever you want to call us. I, but he, he, he chose to be baptized today. And so I got, I got to, um, witness that, uh, my wife did not because of the ER and all that stuff. And that's part of why I don't have more sleep than I had, than I would, then would be helpful. Um, but that was wonderful to see my oldest son, um, be baptized as a believer. So, all right. So again, I'm sorry. So we'll go ahead and we'll jump straight on in and we're going to have the second day morning prayer. We're going to open up with that. It's called God overall. Let's pray. O God, all sufficient, thou hast made and upholdest all things by the word of thy power. Darkness is thy pavilion. Thou walkest on the wings of the wind. All nations are nothing before thee. One generation succeeds another, and we hasten back to the dust. The heavens we behold will vanish away like the clouds that cover them. The earth we tread on will dissolve as a morning dream. But thou, unchangeable and incorruptible, art forever and ever. God over all, blessed eternally, infinitely great and glorious art thou. We are thy offspring and thy care. Thy hands have made and fashioned us. Thou hast watched over us with more than parental love, more than maternal tenderness. Thou hast holden our soul in life and not suffered our feet to be moved. Thy divine power has given us all things necessary for life and godliness. Let us bless thee at all times, and forget not how thou hast forgiven our iniquities, healed our diseases, redeemed our lives from destruction, crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercies, satisfied our mouths with good things, renewed our youth like the eagles. May thy holy scriptures govern every part of our lives, and regulate the discharge of all our duties, so that we may adorn thy doctrine in all things. Amen. All right, and our morning devotion, the text for it, and this is for uh, August 14th. The text for it is out of Psalm 92.4. Thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. <sighs> Do you believe that your sins are forgiven and that Christ has made a full atonement for them? Then what a joyful Christian you ought to be. How you should live above the common trials and troubles of the world. Since sin is forgiven, can it matter what happens to you now? Luther said, Smite, Lord, smite, for my sin is forgiven. If thou hast but forgiven me, smite as hard as thou wilt. And in a similar spirit you may say, Sin, sickness, poverty, losses, crosses, persecution, what thou wilt. Thou hast forgiven me, and my soul is glad. Christian, if thou art thus saved, wilt thou art Wilst thou art glad, be grateful and loving? Cling to that cross which took thy sin away. Serve thou him who served thee. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
Let not your zeal evaporate in some little ebullition of song. Show your love in expression, expressive tokens. Excuse me. Love the brethren of him who loved you. If there be a Mephibosheth anywhere who is lame or halt, help him for Jonathan's sake. If there be a poor tired believer, weep with him and bear his cross for the sake of him who wept for thee and carried thy sins. Since thou art thus forgiven freely for Christ's sake, go and tell to others the joyful news of pardoning mercy. Be not contented with this unspeakable blessing for thyself alone, but publish abroad the story of the cross. Holy gladness and holy boldness will make you a good preacher, and all the world will be a pulpit for you to preach in. Cheerful holiness is the most forcible of sermons, but the Lord must give it you. Seek it this morning before you go into the world. When it is the Lord's work in which we rejoice, we need not be afraid of being too glad. All right, well, we're getting into our reading, and I'm going to drink some water here real quick. Let's see, our reading for the day. We're going to be reading the very last verse of Nehemiah 7, that's verse 73, and read through into Nehemiah 9, verse 21. We're going to be reading 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 18, Psalm 33, verses 12 through 22, which is the end of that uh, that psalm, and Proverbs 21, verses 11 and 12. Um, and I'm sorry, since we didn't record yesterday, um, basically a lot of this was... Talking about the number of um, people chosen and set out as temple servants and everything like that as Nehemiah is rebuilding Jerusalem and reestablishing um, temple worship and all that stuff. Um, and then we get towards the end of all this right up to the verse we're going to read. And then it's the donations people have made for the house of God. So that's what we've been doing up to this point. So Nehemiah 7 verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. Then the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in their cities. Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which is in front of the water gate. And they said to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand when listening on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Pedaiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed Yahweh the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. Also Je Je Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Maasaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelaiah, the Levites, were providing understanding of the law to the people while the people stood in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, explaining and giving insight, and they provided 
understanding of the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who provided the people with understanding, said to all the people, This day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Then all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate with great gladness, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then on the second day the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how Yahweh had commanded by the hand of Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should make the report heard and make a proclamation of it pass through all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was exceedingly great gladness, and he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the legal judgment. Nehemiah 9, we're going through to verse 21. Now on the twenty-fourth day of this month the sons of Israel gathered with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The seed of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they rose up in their place and read from the book of the law of Yahweh, their God, for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they were confessing and worshipping Yahweh their God. Then Jeshua rose up on the Levite's platform, along with Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenanai, and they cried out with a loud voice to Yahweh their God. And the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Hashbaniah, I think that's right, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said, Rise up, bless Yahweh your God from everlasting to everlasting. O may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are Yahweh. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down to you. You are Yahweh God, who chose Abraham, I'm sorry, who chose Abram and brought him out from the from Ur of the Chaldees, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and cut a covenant with him, to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his seed. And you have established your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted presumptuously toward them, and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You split the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry land, and their pursuers you cast into the depths, like a stone into mighty waters, and with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night 
to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them upright judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded to them commandments, statutes, and law by the hand of your servant Moses. You gave bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you said to them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted presumptuously. They became stiff-necked and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you did among them. So they became stiff-necked and gave themselves a chief to return to their themselves a chief to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of lavish forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a molten calf and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. But you, in your abundant compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to give them insight. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they did not lack. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. All right. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 18. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have authority to eat and drink? Do we not have authority to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have authority to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not consume the fruit of it? Or who shepherds a flock and does not consume the milk of the flock? Am I speaking these things according to human judgment? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. Is God merely concerned about oxen? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crop. The crops, excuse me. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this authority over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this authority, but we endure all things, so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred service, services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have anyone make my boast an empty one. If I proclaim the gospel, I have nothing to boast, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not proclaim the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I proclaim the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my authority in the gospel. All right, Psalm 33, verses 12 through 22. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. 
Yahweh looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation he gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who forms the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for salvation, nor does it provide escape to anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul is patient for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Yahweh, be upon us as we wait for you. All right, finally, Proverbs 21, verses 11 and 12. When the scoffer is punished, the simple becomes wise, and when one considers wisdom, he receives knowledge. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked, turning the wicked to ruin. All right, well, that is our reading for the day. Thank you for spending this time with me, and thank you for being understanding. I'm assuming you are <laughs> being understanding about me not getting recorded for for uh, Sunday. Um, just wow, that was just way too much stuff going on. Um, but but I've hope hope you've had a you did have a wonderful weekend. I hope you worship with the saints. I hope you have a wonderful day today. I would continue to implore you to do all you do for the glory of God. And I hope to see you for the evening segment as we continue on in our Bible study. Uh, let's go ahead and let's close out in prayer. The prayer we're going to close out with is called Desires. Let's pray. O thou that hearest prayer, teach me to pray. I confess that in religious exercises, the language of my lips and the feelings of my heart have not always agreed. That I have frequently taken carelessly upon my tongue a name never pronounced above without reverence and humility that I have often desired things which would have injured me, that I have depreciated some of my chief mercies, that I have erred both on the side of my hopes and also of my fears, that I am unfit to choose for myself, for it is not in me to direct my steps. Let thy spirit help my infirmities, for I know not what to pray for as I ought. Let him produce in me wise desires by which I may ask right things, then I shall know thou hearest me. May I never be importunate for temporal blessings, but always refer them to thy fatherly goodness. For thou knowest what I need before I ask. May I never think I prosper unless my soul prospers, or that I am rich unless rich toward, toward thee. Excuse me. Or that I am wise unless wise unto salvation. May I seek first thy kingdom and its righteousness. May I value things in relation to eternity. May my spiritual welfare be my chief solicitude. May I be poor, afflicted, despised, and have thy blessing, rather than be su successful in enterprise, or have more than my heart can wish, or be admired by my fellow men. If thereby these things make me forget thee, may I regard the world as dreams, lies, vanities, vexation of spirit, and desire to depart from it, and may I seek my happiness in thy favor, image, presence, service. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful day, and I hope to see you for this evening. Have a good one. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Monday, uh, August 14th, 
Yeah, August 14th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. Um, yeah, so so anyway, <laughs> sorry. Um, still tired, trying to, trying to get this recorded ahead of time um, to get it out tomorrow for you. Um, and want to remind you, you know, I, I'm working on a little bit, a little bit less sleep, so I'll do my best not to yawn in your face, um, or in your ear. Um, so, um, we, we are continuing on in our gospel and our Bible study. Wow. Having trouble talking right now in our Bible study in the gospel of John, John chapter 11. And, uh, we'll be, we'll be working on, uh, we're in this section actually dealing with the miracle itself. But let's go ahead and let's open up with prayer. Um, this one got a pretty long title here from Valley Vision. It's called The Cry of a Convicted Sinner. And I would hope we are, we are all convicted sinners, that we're not s- still sitting there making excuses and trying to blame on anybody else, that, that we're truly, truly sensing that personal conviction of our sins. Um, it's a necessity. It's a necessity, necessity for us as sinners. But so again, the cry of a convicted sinner. Let's pray. Thou righteous and holy sovereign, in whose hand is my life and whose are all my ways. Keep me from fluttering about religion. Fix me firm in it, for I am irresolute. My decisions are smoke and vapor, and I do not glorify thee or behave according to thy will. Cut me not off before my thoughts grow to responses and the budding of my soul into full flower. For thou art forbearing and good, patient and kind. Save me from myself, from the artifices and deceits of sin, from the treachery of my perverse nature, from denying thy charge against my offenses, from a life of continual rebellion against thee, from wrong principles, views, and ends. For I know that all my thoughts, affections, desires, and pursuits are alienated from thee. I have acted as if I hated thee, although thou art love itself, have contrived can have contrived to to tempt thee to the uttermost to wear out thy patience have lived evilly in word and action had i been a prince i would long ago have crushed such a rebel had i been a father i would long since have rejected my child o thou father of my spirit thou king of my life cast me not into destruction drive me not from thy presence but wound my heart that it may be healed break it that thine own hand may make it whole Amen. All right, our evening devotion here for August 30, or wow, August 14th, excuse me. Uh, the text for it, um, for the evening devotion, is from Exodus 3 7. I know their sorrows. The child is cheered as he sings, This is my this my father knows, and shall we and shall not we be comforted as we discern that our dear friend and tender soul husband knows all about us? Number one. He is the physician, and if he knows all, there is no need that the patient should know. Hush, thou silly, fluttering heart, prying, peeping, and suspecting. What thou knowest not now, thou shalt know hereafter, and meanwhile Jesus, the beloved physician, knows thy soul in adversities. Why need the patient analyze all the medicine or estimate all the symptoms? This is the physician's work, not mine. It is my business to trust and his to prescribe. If he shall write his prescription in uncouth characters, which I cannot read, I will not be uneasy on that account, but rely upon his unfailing skill to make all plain in the result, however mysterious in the working. He, number two, he is the master, and his knowledge is to serve us instead of our own. We are to obey, not to judge. 
the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. Shall the architect explain his plans to every hodman on the works? If he knows his own intent, is it not enough? The vessel on the wheel cannot guess to what pattern it shall be conformed. But if the potter understands his art, what matters the ignorance of the clay? My Lord must not be cross-questioned any more by one so ignorant as I am. Number three, he is the head. All understanding centers there. What judgment has the arm? What comprehension has the foot? All the power to know lies in the head. Why should the member have a brain of its own when the head fulfills for it every intellectual office? Here, then, must the believer rest his comfort in, in sickness, not, not that he himself can see the end, but that Jesus knows all. Sweet Lord, be thou forever eye and soul and head for us, and let us be content to know only what thou choosest to reveal. All right, well, like I said, we're going to be continuing on in our study of John chapter 11. Let me have a little bit of water here. All right. Okay, so like we've said, um, we've we've watched, and I'm just, just going to run back through this very, very quickly um, because we need to know the context that this is happening in, that we've watched from John chapter 5 through John chapter 10, uh, the Jews and remember what John the Apostle, the way when he says Jews, what he's talking about. He's talking about the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership there. Okay, that's what he's referring to. He's not talking the average guy on the street. He's talking about the leadership. That they have had a hostile, murderous relationship with Jesus. Um, if you want to call it a relationship. I'm just trying to say their interaction with him from the get-go has been hostile and it's only gotten worse um and and has become murderous i mean they've tried multiple times to take him or or picked up stones actually to stone him um they haven't accomplished that obviously because remember we've talked about the divine timetable before it is not god's time yet just like in this case this is not god's time yet you know and we talked about that back when we were talking about um the the sickness we were talking about that sickness for the glory of god that that pre-Jesus arriving there and we talked about that with the cautious disciples they didn't want him to go because they were worried about him being killed and then they even to the point where Thomas said well we should go with him so we can die with him um you know they just I mean, it, it, it was reasonable to think that because of how hostile and antagonistic they are I, they're, they're not willing and like I've said before they have more per who they are what their tradition is and all of that they should know more than anybody else that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, that he is their Savior. They should know that more than anybody else. And either they don't, they're not as smart as they think they are, um, or they do and they're behaving in a willfully ignorant way that they're not willing to acknowledge it because it messes with their agenda or, and I guess this would come more out of John chapter nine with the man who was born blind, they're manifesting a severe case of spiritual blindness um, because they're absolutely certain. And that spiritual blindness comes from being absolutely certain that you have clear vision, clear spiritual vision and not being willing to humble yourself to be given spiritual sight like the man born blind did. So in whatever case, that's where this is all happening. 
And so we've we dove into this. We've dove, dove into John 11. And like I said, all of John 11 deals with um, the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Um, and, and I mentioned it as we headed into it, that it's really, really easy to get caught up on different pieces of it and miss the core. Miss the core. And so let me be real clear up front. The core of this occurrence um and this is the i believe this is the seventh miracle that that is recorded here in the gospel of john but what is core that we need to get out of all these verses and there's pieces and we need to break down and go through but it's just like with the gospel of john we have an overall theme and that theme is clear in john 20 verse 31 that all these things are written so that in knowing um, actually, you know what, let me just look it up and read it. Cause I'm not, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a little out of it and I don't want to quote it incorrectly. So let me just bring it up and it only takes just a second. Here we go. John 20, 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So again, John wrote all this down, all of his recordings of Jesus' teachings, his recordings of the miracles, all those have been written down so that we would believe, that we would truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he's our Lord and Savior, and that believing you may have life in his name, so that we would have saving faith, and in that saving faith, we would have eternal life. Okay? That's why that was written. So, the same, the same can be true of this chapter. And so what I'm trying to get at is the crux of this chapter. It's not about Lazarus. It's not about the sisters. It's not necessarily about the Jews and their reactions to it, though, though those are all things we need to look at. Um, but the real core is that Jesus is doing this to show clearly one, to make one clear final case that he is the Christ, the son of God. But more than that, it's to bring glory to God. It, it's to show his oneness with God, to bring glory to God and to show clearly that he is doing God's work. That's the purpose of it. So it's about Christ. It's about Christ. He is central to this, not the rest. Even though people go, well, Lazarus was the one who was died and was resurrected. Yeah, agreed. But he was a set piece, and, and not to belittle Lazarus in any way, shape, or form. Obviously, Jesus loved him. But he was a set piece. The center of this is Christ. Okay, so we got to remember that. But so as we came into this, like, like I said, and, and again, I've told you before, I use MacArthur's um, topics and, and headers and stuff like that because it's just easier for me to do this. Um, it, 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 it allows me to, to spend less time away from my wife. Um, while putting this together, but I do that because I trust him. Um, it's very good layout. So, but what we basically have here in John chapter 11 is we've got four sections here around this. Um, the first section was prior to Jesus. It's, it's, it's Lazarus being sick and Jesus not yet having gone to Bethany. The second section is Jesus having arrived in Bethany. The third section is the actual raising of Lazarus, the actual miracle. And the fourth section is 
the aftermath? What is the what is the response? What is the aftermath to this miracle having been done, to God having been glorified? So the way MacArthur refers to them is the first section is sickness for the glory of God. Again, he is sick. Lazarus is sick. He dies. You've got the concerned sisters that send the message out. Um, you know, the the one the one that you love is sick. Um and of course, Jesus, we find out in the section about the cautious disciples, verses 7 through 16, very, very clearly that Jesus knows Lazarus is dead. And Jesus saying, you know, he waits two days, but then he says, OK, let's go. And of course, the guys are, are like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, they were already trying to kill you. Um, and, you know, he refers to it as being asleep, which is actually was common in that time to say that when referring to death. But they thought he was meaning literal sleep. And so he had to be clear. No, Lazarus is dead. And they're like, well, then what do we get? What are we going there for? You know, it's they, they have the same problem with Martha, that as much as they love him and trust him and they've seen him do so many marvelous miracles. I don't think I, the way it came across to me is they don't really think he can do anything for for Lazarus e either or for the sisters. And again, part part two, we get in part two. It's the arrival of the savior, the savior getting there. Um, and he's showing up and his making claims and, you know, Martha addressing him and then, um, you know, and then Mary addressing him and coming out. Um, and, and we saw Jesus, Jesus's frustration um, as we got into the third section, this right around, which we're in now, the raising of Lazarus um, and his frustration with them. Um, we saw um, where to go. Oh, so Jesus, uh, actually, no, I want to back even further. Um, when Jesus, uh, this verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her crying and this Mary and the Jews who came with her again, Jewish leadership also crying, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And again, we talked about it. This isn't him being all sad and weepy though. That's part of it. Uh, you know, he, he, but it, it's the fact that he is, he is even to a point of anger and frustration at the fact at what sin is doing the effect sin has had and on the on top of the fact that the, the lack of belief that's being manifested here um so we see all that and so we saw the perplexity and the problem and so what we're going to see here and so the problem being um what was it that was verse 38 39 yeah Oh, okay. So this is, this is Martha's response to him when he says to remove the stone, Martha, again, still manifesting, not that she doesn't believe that he's the Christ, the son of God, but she doesn't have a belief that he can do whatever the father sets him to do, that he can raise this man from the dead. And again, this is, this is a precursor or, or this is a, a foreshadowing, I should say of his own death and resurrection. So, so don't miss that. But we get to our promise and our prayer. So we're doing, uh, we're looking at John 11 verses 40 through 42. So let me go ahead and read them. So Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing around, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. So again, so let's look at verse 40. That is our promise here. And again, so he's responding to Martha's statement of Lord, by this time he smells for he's been dead for days. Again, like I said, 
there, there's a, a little bit of disbelief there. Not, not that he's the Christ, the son of God. She's repeatedly said that actually, she said that exactly before this, um, in, in this ongoing conversation. But Jesus's response to her, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? Now, um, you know, there, there's a lot of speculation about this, um, that, that, um, he's referring when he says this, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God, that he's referring to a conversation that's not actually recorded in scripture. Um, there's others that, that think that what we're seeing here is kind of a, uh, Jesus's response to a composite of, of, or, or responding and, and addressing kind of in a composite of what he said in verse four, uh, which was, let me roll back there. Verse four, uh, where he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified by it. Um, Jesus said that, and he said that to the 12. Well, the, the assumption would be that that was related back to Martha and Mary. The sickness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. So there's thought that it, that Jesus' response is kind of a composite of what he had said there, and then what he had said, verse 23 through 26. Your brother will rise again, Martha said to him. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? So there, there's thoughts that, that it's maybe a composite um, uh, addressing of that, that he's basically pointing back to those together. Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So basically he's saying, didn't I say to you that the glory of God is going to be manifest and what's going to happen here with your brother? Didn't I say that? Even though she's saying, oh, he's going to stink. Well, God's working here. Don't you think something amazing is about to happen here? And so in, in reading, of course, in MacArthur's commentary, as obviously I do, I came across um, MacArthur quoted from Leon Morris's. Sorry, I'm banging the microphone there. Leon Morris's commentary here. Um, so let me read this um, in his address and his look at this. For Jesus, the glory of God was the one important thing. This means that the real meaning of what he would do would be accessible only to faith. All who were there, believers or not, would see the miracle, but Jesus is promising Martha a sight of the glory. The crowd would see the miracle, but only believers would perceive its real significance, the glory. So again, you know, here's Jesus, and I, and I think it, he makes a good point there, um, that you know, he, he says this to her. Did I not say that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? That I, I think Morris makes a good point here that it's Martha, because you believe you're going to see the glory of God. Um, think back on it. Um, uh, you, you can see it in John too. You see it throughout the gospels, but you can see it in John too. You see people come and, and you see the verbiage. Even John, the apostle uses it talks about people believing, but we've talked about before, and I've been very, very clear about it is the believing he's talking about is they believe they've seen something really, really cool. You know, wow, that, that really happened. Not that they, there was an illusion or something, but that this really, really happened, but they're not coming to a saving faith in Christ. So again, they're not seeing the glory in that. And I, I that makes complete sense to me. They don't see the glory of God in that. 
they just see, wow, that's really cool. Think of um, Simon Mackis, who, you know, professed to be a believer. But when they they turned around and um, they baptized and the Holy Spirit came on these people, he wanted to buy that power. It wasn't about a saving faith. He, he wanted to show power. And of course we see that, but it's, he's not getting the glory of God out of what's happening. It's, Oh, look, people would be really impressed with it. It's like, it, it would be like, a. am thinking back to shows I've watched where one of the episodes would be around a magician and doing something. Sorry, I needed some water. And the magician would be focused on one big trick. And, you know, so it'd be something like a, like a, um, oh, uh, like a Houdini box, box filled with water. And they're, they're all tied in there in a straight jacket and they've got to escape and all that kind of stuff. So they see something like that, but they're not seeing the glory of God and what's going on. What he is saying here is, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God, that the glory of God is about to be manifest in what's going to happen here with your brother. So why are you worrying about the smell when that, that's not the thing? What did he say? I mean, what was she thinking? They were just going to roll it back and everybody was going to smell the smell and it was going to be like, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to be a little crass here and I don't mean to be, um, but, but what did think it was going to be something like, um, I, I'm sorry, I love minions and I love the Despicable Me movies because they're just, they're so Keystone cops. There's no, there's no agenda or anything. Um, but they tend to make, um, <laughs> their their evil scientist makes them fart guns so what so i'm thinking what what is martha thinking that that that's going to be the glory of god is the fart gun of of the smell from you know uh lazarus's corpse coming out and that's going to be that no i i mean something glorious is about to happen and that's what he's saying to her something glorious is about to happen why are you not getting this i mean it's you know it's a, it's a pointing back to that but it's also and and what i've been reading it's kind of a rebuke and it would be a rebuke to us. You know, we need to grasp a miracle is being done here. The fact is miracles happen around us all the time. And we don't even realize that they're miracles. But that's the thing. There's the promise. He made that promise that you're going to see the glory of God. So then the prayer verses 41 and 42. So I'm going to read it again. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing around, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. So, so you see that, so they removed the stone. So Jesus let somebody else do it. Now, you know, let's not, let's not think that Jesus couldn't have removed it himself. Um, but Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, had a thought and MacArthur put this in his commentary and it's an interesting thought. I don't, I don't know that it really matters, but it is an interesting thought. Um, and, and we've got to see this. I mean, again, we talked about it and, and it makes sense. Chrysostom makes a good point. Um, we talked about that Jesus waited two days and, and kind of made sure that by the time he got there, Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. So remember they had that kind of thought that, that tradition that the soul would circle around the body for three days before it would finally move on. Therefore, you know, Jesus waited the four, so they couldn't even claim, you know, there wouldn't be a, oh, well, the soul was just hanging out and, and this just pulled it back or something like that. Trying to make very, very clear that God raised this man 
from being certainly dead. So remember, we were talking about that. So Chrysostom here thought that Jesus involved the bystanders in opening the tomb so that there would be no doubt that it was really Lazarus who was raised. Meaning he was, he was making absolutely clear. And I don't know whether this is so or not, but, it, but it kind of fits, doesn't it? I mean, with him waiting two extra days to make sure that Lazarus is dead and Lazarus is by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been in the ground for four days. He, he makes specific note of that. And we've talked about why, <coughs> why we think that is so well, this would make sense. What Chrysostom is saying, making very, very clear that these bystanders, they're the ones that open it up. He didn't open it up. He didn't do anything. He has not touched the tomb. So there's no way that, that, that he could have done anything that would take away from the God, the glory, the, the, I'm trying to think of the right way. I want to say this, um, the, of, of the amazement, the amazingness of this miracle that brings glory to God. I guess that was the best way. I, I don't really like the way I said that, but, but I, I hope you get what I'm saying. He didn't want to take anything away. He didn't want there to be any question of the integrity of this miracle in any way, shape, or form, because the key of it is to bring glory to God and to show clearly that Jesus and God are one, that Jesus and Nazareth and God are one, that Jesus is doing the will of God. So, they remove the stone, and Jesus says, Father, I thank, the, thank you that you have heard me. Please don't misunderstand that. That, that is not hear, him going, Lord, thank you that you bothered to take the time off from whatever you're doing to listen to me or even a thank you that you acceded to my request to raise Lazarus. It's not any of that. And we go on verse 42 and I knew that you always hear me. He even corrects his corrects this. I know you always hear me. I I'm, I'm not, I'm not really thanking you because you hear me. I'm thanking you that you're making clear that you hear me because of this crowd standing around and he said that, and he makes clear, he said that because of the crowd, so that they can believe and see that you sent me, that God sent him. He's trying to make clear to the crowd. He's saying the things he's saying for the crowd around him, particularly the Jews, okay, the Jewish leadership there, that religious leadership would know that God is listening and has listened and that what is about to occur is occurring because God has set Jesus to do this, that God sent him and that he's showing clearly that his mission is to do the will of God, which is one of the things they've been arguing with him. Call it saying, oh, you have a demon. Oh, you're a Samaritan. Um, you know, um, oh, there's no way you're from God. I mean, you know, there's, there's been constant, like I've said, from John five on, you know, we've, we've had, um, six full chapters of them tearing into Jesus and, and no matter what was shown to them, no matter how clear the proof, no matter how thorough the witnesses were, they don't want to acknowledge it. Well, he's making very, very clear here that Jesus came to bring glory to God. Jesus came to do what God had set for him to do and that he only did what God directed him to do what God had shown him to do. We've seen that even God had shown him to do, and that's all he's doing. And thus 
He and God are one. Jesus and God are one. So that you may believe, so that they may believe that you sent me. There's the prayer. And the prayer is a public one. And the prayer is to make clear to them that he's talking to God, but he's doing so to make clear to them that he has been sent by God and what he is about to do, he is doing at the will of God, that he is doing God's will. That's what he's showing them there. That is what he's showing them there. And he's trying to make very, very clear. Because again, like I said, this is kind of, this is the last miracle other than Christ's death and resurrection of his own. Um, that I, I think this is the last one we see, but it, it is a major one. It is the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Somebody he loved, somebody very well known by the religious leadership. This, this is not some random, random John Smith you know, out, out in the hinterlands that they hear a story about. This is something they're going to be directly exposed to like they were. I mean, the man born blind, they were exposed to that here. They're going to see a man brought back to life by this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, that they continue to disparage and attack and deny. And he's about to show them. And without a shadow of a doubt, not that he needed to do anything else because he's really already shown them beyond a shadow of a doubt of who he is and what his mission is. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. All right. Well, that's going to do it for tonight. Um, let's go ahead and we're going to go ahead and close out in prayer. We're going to close out with the second day evening prayer. It's called Bounty. Let's pray. Thou great and only potentate, thou hast made summer and winter, day and night. Each of these revolutions serves our, our welfare and is full of thy care and kindness. Thy bounty is seen in the relations that train us, the laws that defend us, the homes that shelter us, the food that builds us, the raiment that comforts us, the continuance of our health, members, senses, understanding, memory, affection, will. But as stars fade before the rising sun, Thou hast eclipsed all these benefits in the wisdom and grace that purposed redemption by Jesus thy Son. Blessed be thy mercy that laid help on one that is mighty and willing, one that is able to save to the uttermost. Make us deeply sensible of our need of his saving grace, of the blood that cleanses, of the rest he has promised, and impute to us that righteousness which justifies the guilty, gives them a title to eternal life and possession of the Spirit. May we love the freeness of salvation and joy in its happiness. Give us faith to grasp thy promises that are our hope. Provide for every exigency and prevent every evil. Keep our hearts from straying after forbidden pleasures. May thy will bind all our wishes. Let us live out of the world as to its spirit, maxim, manners, but live in it as the sphere of our action and usefulness. May we be alive to every call of duty, accepting without question thy determination of our circumstances and our service. Amen. All right. Well, thank you for spending this time with me this evening. I hope this continues to be or has ever been. I hope it has been edifying and equipping um, and it has helped to enlighten you. Um, again, that, that's why I do this. Um, this is to help keep us all saturated in the scripture and to not only just be reading it, but be learning it. 
um, to be truly shaped by it, which is what we are to be, what is it is to do with us. Um, so I thank you for spending the time. I hope you have yourself a wonderful evening and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Uh, continue. Um, I, I would continue to ask you, please pray for my wife and I, as she goes through what she's going through. Uh, we, we definitely need the prayer. Um, and we would definitely appreciate it again. I hope you have a great night and I hope to see you tomorrow. Have a good night. God bless. Mm -hmm.